Well, um, today, as you've already heard, is the first day of Advent. So over the next month, we're going to be celebrating the coming of Christ. Both we're going to be thinking about his future coming, but also the fact that he has come. And for me, this is my favorite time of year. Um, If you know me, you know one of the things I love is Christmas music. And if you were to look in my iPhone and you were to look at kind of Dave's Christmas music, you'd see a number of playlists. You'd see my general Christmas pop music. You know, all the stuff you hear on the radio. Christmas instrumental music is another of my playlists. Um, I have a Christmas sacred and maybe one of my favorites, Christmas melancholy. Sort of a, you know, phlegmatic sort of person. So I even like to have like really laid back Christmas music. I love Christmas. If you were to pick one song that were to sort of encapsulate the reality of how I feel about Christmas, it would be that song you always hear on the radio. It's the most wonderful time of the year to me. However, if you talk to people for very long about Christmas, you'll find you come across a number of people for whom Christmas is not at all the most wonderful time of year. It's actually the most difficult time of year. Maybe they've lost someone, and we know in our own church we've lost um, people in the last couple of years. And the thought of celebrating Christmas just feels unbearable to them at this time of year. Right. That was my fault. Something should have gone into the left. Um, it feels unbearable to them. And there are people who are going through things right now where they think to themselves, um, thank you, Chris. <laughs> Why does it need to be plugged in? <laughs> there are people for whom they're thinking to themselves, given what I've got going through right now, right now in my life, how am I supposed to celebrate? How am I supposed to sing a song like Joy to the World? In a world of terrorist attacks, in a world in which I've been given this diagnosis, in a world in which I'm having these problems at work, in a world in which I'm having this conflict with another person that I care about. The irony of this is that this time of year, we're celebrating the fact that our deliverer has come, and yet we're aching and wondering, how am I supposed to celebrate this fact when there's so much in my life I want to be delivered from that God hasn't delivered me? How am I supposed to experience him as my deliverer when I'm waiting to be delivered? It's a question I want to look at this morning. I want us to open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 2 to be able to look at that question. Matthew was written, as you know, the first book of the New Testament. It was written 400 years after the last book of the Old Testament. And in these 400 years between the Testaments, the Jewish people were waiting. They were waiting for God's promises to come true. His promises, his prophecies about a deliverer. And specifically, the deliverance they were looking for was this, deliverance from the nation of Rome. Rome was occupying their land, and they wanted God to come and deliver them. These are the people whom Matthew was writing to in his gospel. And he's writing to them to say, your deliverer has come. And here's the difficult thing that Matthew had to make a case for Your deliverer has come even though you haven't yet been delivered from what you want deliverance from, namely Rome. How is Matthew going to do that? Both the Jewish people and we today are both asking, how are we supposed to experience our deliverer? How are we supposed to think of Jesus as our deliverer when we're waiting to be delivered? And what Matthew is going to do is he's going to answer their question by telling them two things. And he's going to do it through telling the story of Jesus as a child. But the two things he's going to show them is, first of all, 
Jesus provides you with ultimate deliverance. And second, he provides you with an unexpected deliverance. An ultimate and unexpected deliverance. And we're going to talk about what that means. Now, in Matthew 2, we have the familiar story of the wise men that we all know about, right? That's the story of these magi, these men from the east who are coming to find this child king. They run into Herod, the king of Israel, during this time. And Herod, who's paranoid about his rule, says, once you find this child king, let me know about him. I want to know where he is because he's going to want to murder him. And it's within that context that we go to Matthew 2, verses 13 through 15. That's where we'll start. When they had gone, they, the wise men, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt, I have called my son. So in light of the fact that Herod is going to be out trying to kill Jesus, Joseph is warned in a dream, you need to leave Bethlehem. You need to go to Egypt. And the reason he had to go to Egypt is because Egypt was a place that was outside of Herod's jurisdiction. It was a place where there were other Jews who had been settled there. It was about 80 miles from Bethlehem. So he went there to stay safe. Now, Matthew tells us, strangely, that this fulfilled Scripture. And notice what he says. It fulfilled Scripture in this particular passage from Hosea 11.1. It says, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Now, the funny thing is, if you go to Hosea 11 to read it, you'll find something. It has absolutely nothing to do about Jesus. There's nothing to do about a coming Messiah. So how, what is Matthew talking about when he writes to these Jewish people saying, Jesus has fulfilled this by going to Egypt? Well, one of the things you need to understand, and this is, we're talking about prophecy a little bit this week because this is the theme of the first week of Advent. When Matthew tells us that Jesus has fulfilled Scripture, he does so in a couple ways. One, this is what we would call predictive prophecy. That means he says something happened in the Old Testament, there's a prediction, and it came true in Jesus' life, like, Baby's going to be born in Bethlehem. Voila, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. But he uses another way of also telling a scripture is fulfilled. And that's what's called, what might be called a historical analogy. Something happened in the life of Israel in the past, and it's happening again. And in this particular situation, he's saying that just as in the Old Testament, Israel went to Egypt and came back under divine protection from Pharaoh. So now in the New Testament, in the life of Jesus, Jesus goes to Egypt and comes back under divine protection from Herod. But he goes a step further. He's he's showing us that just as God used Moses to deliver the people of Israel from Egypt, God is going to use Jesus to deliver us from from slavery as well. Now, what slavery is Jesus delivering the people of Israel from? They're not in slavery anymore. Now, they are under the occupation of Rome, but Jesus never delivered them from occupation. When Jesus died, Rome was still there. So how is Jesus their deliverer when he didn't deliver them from what they were asking for? Well, Jesus provides them with an ultimate, and us, with an ultimate deliverance. But it's a different sort of deliverance. It's a different sort of slavery. Matthew talks about what sort of deliverance this is when he says in Matthew 1, he will save his people from their sins. What Jesus has come to provide us, more than simply a physical or a temporary deliverance from some sort of slavery or occupation 
or circumstance in our life, he's come to provide us with an ultimate deliverance from the sin that's within us. Why? Why is he providing us with deliverance from something we're not asking for deliverance from? We want him to take away the circumstances in our life. Why is he delivering us first and foremost from sin? Because God knows something that we often don't know. And what he knows is that for deliverance from all, from many of the circumstances in our life, for deliverance from the world's evils like ISIS to occur, it has to start with deliverance from the sin in each of our hearts. Let me give you an example of where you can see this. I have um, one past coworker and a number of other people in personal life who have told me that their husbands have left them to be with another woman. And they want deliverance from that. They want their husbands back. They want deliverance from this reality that they found themselves in. But here's the problem. The only way that that can happen is if something changes in that man's heart. If he doesn't deal with the slavery from sin in his own heart, which led to him leaving his wife in the first place, in each of those circumstances that I'm connected to, there can be no deliverance found. And that's why I believe, in light of the fact that God provides us with ultimate deliverance from sin, the thing we should do in response is ask God to deliver us from ourselves first. Ask him to deliver us from ourselves first. One person who knew how to do this was a man named G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton was a journalist in the early part of the 19th century, um, early part of the 20th century. And there was a newspaper article that he read, and it was an article asking for people to respond to them. And the article said, what's wrong with the world? They wanted people to write in with their answer. What's wrong with the world? And this is how Chesterton responded. He wrote them a letter. He said, dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. Simple, but true. What he knew is he wanted deliverance from all the world's evils, just like many of us do. But for that to happen, he needed to start first with the evil that was in his own heart. Because so much of the things that we see on the news that are evils, things we want deliverance from, have started with the sin in each of our hearts. And unless we do something with the sin in each of our hearts, unless we're freed from that slavery, we're not going to be able to see the world change like we want it to. We're not going to see deliverance like we want it to from many of the things we want deliverance from. Paul knew this, and this is what Paul said in the book of Romans. He said, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. What's he getting at? He's getting at the fact that when actually you're freed from sin, when we become, instead of slaves to our own hearts, we become slaves to God. We're not just freed from the sin in our hearts. We're freed to actually love people and make the world a better place. One place you see this is in the life of William Wilberforce. Some of you know who William Wilberforce is. He was an abolitionist in Great Britain. In, um, he single-handedly ended the slave trade and then just after his death, what he had worked towards his life um, mission had been to end slavery in England. And he did it. The amazing thing was he didn't do it just because he was a nice person and he had a big heart. He did it because of his Christian faith. Wilberforce wrote about this at length. And one of the things you see in his life is by dealing with the slavery of sin in his own life, he was then freed and given new life through the Holy Spirit and a power to search out and fix and deal with the things in our world like slavery. 
that were oppressing so many people. So when we call out for God, deliver us from this. God, free your world from this. The most practical thing God could do is what he's already done. Created a way through his life, death, and resurrection for individuals, people, one at a time to be delivered from the sin in their hearts that's causing so much oppression. So each of us today need to, need to look, take a look inside, not just a look at the news, and ask ourselves, where's the sin in me? Continually identify it. Continually look at how we need to repent of it. Continually asking ourselves how we're contributing to pain in our own lives and the lives of those people around us. And then God will give us the, the desire to make this world a better place. And this is what we sing about. This is what we sing about each Christmas when we say these words. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. All oppression shall cease because of the ultimate deliverance that he's provided us for the sin in our hearts. Now, in addition to the ultimate deliverance he's provided through sin, Matthew's going to go on to show there's another sort of ultimate deliverance that Jesus provided for the nation of Israel and for us. And that's a deliverance from exile. What do I mean by that? Let's continue reading Matthew 2, verses 16 through 18. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. So once Herod realizes the wise men aren't coming back, they're not going to tell me where this child king is, he makes an order, and that order is to kill all the boys to and under in the Bethlehem area in order to stamp out this threat to his throne. Now, why does he tell us this? Why does Matthew tell us this horrible story? Well, Matthew tells us the story because yet again he's saying something that happens in the life of Jesus is again fulfilling Scripture, fulfilling the Old Testament. How? How is this story of these boys being massacred fulfilling Scripture at all? Well, what he has in mind, Matthew, is Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, if you go there, Jeremiah 31, 15, is basically talking about the exile in the Old Testament that took place. Israel, because of its sin, was taken from God and exiled to Babylon. In Jeremiah 31, what happens is Babylon comes, they destroy Jerusalem, and they take the Jewish people and collect them at a place called Ramah. Ramah was where Rachel, the wife of Jacob, one of the patriarchs of Israel, was uh, buried. So what's happening here is Jeremiah is saying, he's using Rachel to personify all these mothers across Israel who are basically mourning and weeping because their children are actually going to never be seen by them again. They're going to be taken away and they're going to be removed to Babylon. What does this have to do with what we're talking about? How does Jesus provide any sort of deliverance here? How does this help us understand it? Well, again, it's by way of historical analogy. What Matthew wants to show us is just as foreign oppressors had attempted to stamp out God's people in the past, so now Herod is again looking to stamp out God's son here and now. But he wants to go a step further. Jeremiah, if you continue reading in, the, in Jeremiah, what you see is God says to them in their exile, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to restore you from this exile that I've placed you in. 
I'm going to give you the land again. And I'm going to give a new covenant, a new beginning to your relationship with me. Well, they got their new land. They did come back, but the problem was Rome was still in charge. And they were expecting a degree of political power if God was truly going to deliver them. They wanted to be delivered and be given political power. And if you're Matthew writing to these Jewish people who don't believe in Jesus, you're having to, again, your kind of hands are full. How do I convince them Jesus is their deliverer when they feel like true deliverance means them getting the political power they've been asking for? And you need to read Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. I just have a couple snippets of that to show what sort of ultimate deliverance actually Jesus was providing because it was different than what they were looking for. This was the deliverance he provided. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I will be their God and they shall be my people. I will forgive their iniquity and I will, be, and I will remember their sin no more. Notice the focus on forgiving iniquity and sin. What God is most concerned about for these exiles, for these Jewish people, is not simply to deal with providing, not simply to deal with their geographical location, their political needs. He's coming to deal with their relational exile from him. And again, we have to ask, and it's a question we've been asked since the beginning, why is he providing them with deliverance they're not asking for? They want deliverance. They want power. Why is he, asking, why is he providing them with some sort of different deliverance? Because God knows that he needs to provide a deliverance that is more enduring than what the Jewish people are asking for. Any degree of political power they get, any place where they live that they want, that's only temporary. Eventually, when they come to the end of their lives, they need something more enduring than that. They need a deliverance that can even stand up under the face of death. Which brings us to what we need to do in response to this truth, in response to the reality that God has provided us with an ultimate, ultimate deliverance from exile We need to stop looking for deliverance in the wrong places. What do I mean by that? Stop looking for deliverance in the wrong places. As an American church, Pastor Eric was talking about this last week, we can often, you know, deal with the fact that we believe we are in exile. The Bible talks about the fact in the New Testament that we're in exile, and we feel it, maybe because of political decisions that were made, cultural movements that have taken place. We feel like we're in the margins. And what we want, like the people of Israel, is we want political power to find our deliverance from the exile that we're in. And a great place to find it is in the 2016 presidential election, where we're asking, God, send us a deliverer. Who is our deliverer who's going to come and restore us to political power? Come and give us what we're looking for. The problem is twofold. Number one, Any sort of deliverance you might find through a president is only temporary. A president can at most reign, whatever you want to call it, serve for eight years. Then it's over. And more to the point, what the late Chuck Colson said is, the kingdom of God will not arrive on Air Force One. It's not going to happen. Like the people of Israel, we want deliverance from exile that looks like us getting the power we want. But Jesus is saying, I'm giving you a different more enduring deliverance from exile, one one that can stand up beyond any presidential term, and one that you can know will be there, even at the face of death, even at the the exile of death that you experience. And let me clarify something. This does not mean that we should not be asking God for temporary deliverance in our life from things that we face. There are things going on in each of our lives 
where we do ask, God, deliver us. Jesus has given us in the Lord's Prayer this phrase, deliver us from evil. We should pray that. Psalms give us over and over again, Lord, deliver me from what I'm going through. We should pray that. The issue is that we need to remember, though, is any deliverance we can find from a temporary thing we're going through is just that. It's temporary deliverance. And he has come to rise with a more enduring, ultimate deliverance. You may have seen uh, some of your you know, Facebook readers, and you may have seen a message that Deb had sent out in the past 48 hours where a friend of hers, really close friend, who many of you have been praying for, is in the final stages of her life right now. We've been praying for her for years. We continue to pray for her. And we've prayed all this time that she would be delivered from what she's going through. And we believe that in this illness, those prayers did cause her to live longer than what was expected. And that's appropriate. But at this time, as she's in the final stages of her life, I'm very thankful for the deliverance that Jesus brought. That he doesn't just bring a temporary deliverance by removing something from our lives that eventually is going to catch up with us in the end. He's provided an ultimate deliverance that's going to stand up in the face of this woman's death. But does that mean that there's not intense and excruciating pain for her sons, for her husband? No. But what it does mean is we can rest, even as we grieve, in the reality that the ultimate deliverance that Jesus offered is a deliverance that because it deals with the relational exile between each of us and God, she's going to be rescued from death because of what Jesus has done, because of the deliverance that he provides. And what we've seen so far is that Jesus came to provide us with an ultimate deliverance, which is different and what the Jewish people and we often are looking for is an ultimate deliverance, both from the slavery of sin within us and from the exile we experience in our relationship with God. For that to make sense to us in our brains, because it doesn't make sense to a lot of people in our culture. They're not thinking that Christianity really makes a lot of intellectual sense to them. For it to make intellectual sense to us, we need to see something in Jesus. We need to see the fact that Jesus takes an unexpected approach to deliverance. He always has, and he continues to. What do I mean by this? We'll continue in Matthew 2. We're going to read in verses 19 through 23. He's going to provide the culmination of this account of Jesus' experience here with the threat of Herod. Now, after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. So Herod dies. Jesus has been delivered from this threat and Joseph's given yet another dream. And in this dream, he's told, don't go back to Bethlehem, go to Nazareth. Raise Jesus there, because in Bethlehem, Herod's son, Archelaus, who's just as vicious and paranoid as Herod was, is reigning. You need to be delivered from this. Go to Nazareth and raise Jesus there. And again, for the third time in the passage we've read, Matthew is going to say, and so he fulfilled scripture. Now, this is the most puzzling. Of each of these passages, this is the most puzzling. How is Jesus being a Nazarene? In Nazareth, how does this fulfill scripture? 
And I say it's puzzling because if you read through the Old Testament, there's no place where it actually says a deliverer is going to come from Nazareth. Nazareth is this really small, remote village that you would never have expected any sort of deliverer to come from. It was theologically and politically um, really not central at all. I mean, theologically, Jesus was supposed to come, the Messiah was supposed to come from Bethlehem. Politically, he was supposed to reign in Jerusalem. So what's going on here? Well, what Matthew is going to show us is that, again, Jesus has provided an unexpected way, an unexpected approach to deliverance. Now, the reason he's saying this scripture is fulfilled by him being a Nazarene is because of a couple passages from the Old Testament that he's probably thinking of. One is in Isaiah 11.1. 1. And this is what Isaiah 11.1 1 says. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. This word branch is significant here. All the people, the Jewish readers of the time would have said, oh, this is that passage about the coming deliverer. The branch was a term used, it was a tree metaphor. And you see that common in the Old Testament where what, the, what Matthew is saying is, basically, this Nazarene, this word Nazarene comes from the Hebrew word neser, which means branch. And therefore, he's using a wordplay to say, Jesus growing up in Nazareth, he's growing up in Nazareth as this promised branch. But he's a different sort of branch. If you go later in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah gets into a little bit more what this branch was going to be like. And it wasn't expected by the Jewish people. This is what is said. He, we believe it to be Jesus, he grew up before him like a tender shoot, branch, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. This was the branch who was coming. This was the Nazarene. And by growing up in Nazarene, it totally fits the picture of someone who, when you read these words, was someone who was in really low esteem. If you go to John 1, what you see there is a couple of Jesus' potential disciples talking, and Philip says to Nathaniel, hey, we found the Messiah. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And if you remember, Nathaniel says, Nazareth? Does anything good come from Nazareth? Like, are you serious? He's from Nazareth? And Matthew was showing us that the approach Jesus takes to providing deliverance isn't the one we would take. It's an unexpected approach. He grows up in Nazareth. As he grows older, he becomes a carpenter, not necessarily going to any sort of religious school. He spends time with prostitutes and various sorts of social outcasts, not again what you'd expect of a Messiah or deliverer. And then finally, he does go to Jerusalem, but not to seize political power, but to instead give power away by dying on a cross. And what Matthew wants us to see is this is important because it's not just how Jesus goes about providing deliverance. It's not just the unexpected approach he takes. It's the approach we should be taking as well in our calling. You see this in the book of Acts where Paul, who had been really looked up to, Paul was really held in high esteem while he was a Jewish leader. But then what happened? He comes to Jesus. And this is what one of the Jewish lawyers in Acts says about him. We have found this man to be a troublemaker stirring up riots among all the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. Basically, he's being made fun of for being a follower of the Nazarene Jesus. 
And Paul's model here is what we need to begin taking as Christians living in the 21st century. And that is to expect the unexpected in our calling to follow this. This deliverer took an unexpected approach. This is not the approach of being mocked and made fun of and seen as social and cultural outcasts in America. This isn't something that we really want. We want instead what I'm going to call the Leo McGarry approach. Now, this is a quiz. Does anyone know who Leo McGarry is? West Wing. Thank you. This is Leo McGarry, chief of staff in Jed Bartlett's White House, fictional White House. And Leo McGarry, in kind of the final, there's this episode where there's 365 days left in uh, Jed Bartlett's last term. And he wants to pump up the West Wing staff to, you know, be about their position. And this is what he says to them. He says, we have the ability to affect more change in a day in the White House than we will have in a lifetime once we walk out these doors. Leah McGarry approaches, get as much power as you can, build as much social capital and respectability as you can, go to the best schools, be the top of your culture, and then you can bring about real change. Then you can really deliver the world from its evils. The problem is this isn't the approach Jesus took. He could have. He could have gone to Jerusalem. He could have assumed political power. He could have done everything that we would have expected him to do, but he didn't. And from the beginning, this brought about people rejecting him and thinking this is a ridiculous approach that you're taking. Um, Paul talks about this. As Paul was trying to share the message of the gospel, this is what he found happened. He said, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. What does that mean? It means the Jewish people thought, the Jewish people had a really hard time with this message. The message of a crucified Messiah seemed to them extremely weak. We don't want a deliverer who dies. We want a deliverer who basically crushes the Roman people, who has power. And the Greeks or the Gentiles just thought it was stupid. thought it was ridiculous. You're telling me that this guy from Nazareth dies on a Roman cross like hundreds of other, thousands of other people, and he's our deliverer? This is just stupid. But from the earliest days of the Christian movement, the Christians have responded back that actually this unexpected deliverance, this unexpected approach, rather than being weak, and rather than being stupid, is just the opposite. It's actually more powerful than any deliverance any army can provide because it is the power to deal with our hearts. No army and no president can change the human heart. The gospel only has the power to change heart after heart after heart and will eventually provide ultimate deliverance to our entire world through changing the human hearts through the gospel. And rather than being simply stupid, what Paul wants to tell us is it's actually more intellectual than anything a professor could come up with because it's not just built on common sense. This is the wisdom of God himself. And it's a wisdom that when you look back over the last 2,000 years has changed the world. And this is why it led Paul to say this. But to those who were called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. As we close, what I want us to remember is as this season we celebrate Christmas and as we struggle to do so at times because we want God to deliver ourselves from the aching things that we experience, from the pain we see in our family's lives, pain we see in friends' lives. 
Let's continue to ask him for that deliverance. Let's continue to plead with him, to cry out to him to deliver us from those things. But let's remember as we're crying out to him that he is already to provide us with an ultimate deliverance from the slavery of sin in each of our hearts. These provide us with an ultimate deliverance from the exile and the relational exile that every single person experiences. And let's remember that we are called to take a rather unexpected approach in our world so that we can be a part of his secret rescue plan. We can be part of what he's doing in the world in which we change the world one heart at a time. And maybe as we remember that, as we celebrate it, we could truly sing these words, joy to the world because the Lord has come. He has come. Let's pray. Father, there's a lot of hurting in our church. There's a lot of hurting in your world. In the face of all this hurt, remind us of who you are. Remind us that you are the deliverer who has come and the deliverer who is coming again. And help us remember the fact that you have restored us to yourself. And this relationship that we have in you is not something that anyone can ever take from us it will endure. Thank you for coming and for rescuing us from sin. Thank you for coming and rescuing us from ultimate death. And thank you that you will come again and make all things new. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.